verses 9 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Have you ever felt like you don't belong? I think that's something we all struggle with from the time we're little to the time we get older. There are times in our lives where we feel like we don't belong. We we don't feel included. There's times where we simply look like or feel like we're on the outside looking in. This is not only true for individuals, this is true for groups. There's times where you may have heard the expression, you, you want to be on the right side of history. Uh, you want to be on the right side of a winning debate. You want to be on the right side of a controversy. Certainly, there are those who want to be on the right side of those who are in power. In these kind of groups, we're looking for security, we're looking for comfort, we're looking for a place of belonging, we're looking for a place we can call home. The writer of Hebrews is is writing to a group who had left one community, one group in favor of another. They had left uh, the people of Israel for the church of Christ. But now those in Israel are criticizing them. They're rebuking them. They're saying to them, in essence, your, your religion is inferior. And again, as we've seen over and over again, the temptation is to leave the group they're in, to leave Christ, and to return to Judaism. To leave the, abandon the New Testament in favor of the Old Testament, as it were, or to leave Christ for Israel. And so as we consider this, we're going to see three things, three encouragements, three Uh, ideas that our writer puts forth here the importance of doctrine the ineffectiveness of food and the call to be outsiders the importance of doctrine the ineffectiveness of food and the call to be outsiders we begin by looking at the importance of doctrine if we remember as we've gone through our letter we we could take a look back and we go to chapter five And we remember that uh, the writer has told them that they're not yet mature. He says, uh, if you were mature, you would have moved on, uh, but you have not. You should be teachers, but you're not. And this is what he continues to warn them about in our text today. He warns them about false teaching. One thing they can be sure of is that false teaching is going to creep up in their midst. There will be those who come along and are teaching them wrong things. And so he tells them, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. This is a warning Paul gives over and over again. In Acts 20, he says, I know, he's talking to the Ephesians, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Likewise in 2 Timothy 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure teaching, or excuse me, will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I love the language he uses here of itching ears. Ears that are longing to go somewhere else. Ears that long to hear a different message. And so they'll go find those people who give them the teaching that they want. The danger of false teaching is a real one. We have an aggressive enemy who is seeking to destroy us, of course, the devil. And the devil will attack us from without, but the devil also attacks us from within. American Christians have not experienced extreme persecution, extreme, I should say, external persecution. And we should not be surprised when we see that the devil is working within our walls. False teaching is dazzling to behold. We look at it and we like it because it speaks to self. It speaks to what we want. It speaks to easier. Maybe it's a clever angle on an old theme. Maybe it's something that entices the mind. Maybe it appeals to our intellectual pride. But the writer here calls these teachings diverse and strange or alien. So there, there are going to be many different kinds of teaching and they're going to be alien. What does that mean to be or, or strange or alien? It's the same word that says you're strangers on this earth, right? Aliens. It's that same word in the Greek. And what that means is, is that it has no part of the true teaching of God's word. It is foreign from the teaching of God's word. It has no place there. It's not native. And it describes much of what even still enters the minds of Christians today. How are we to, to tell the difference? Uh, one commentator says we need to be warned about alloy teachings. You know what an alloy is? An alloy is when you take two metals and you put them together to make a different metal. He says we need to be careful about alloy teachings where you take a true teaching of God and you take a false teaching and they mix them together. And how do you tell the difference? Well, that part's true, so is the other part true? So you'll have people today, this is just an example, who say, God is a God of love. Is that true? Yeah. Therefore, God is not a God of judgment. Not true. But people go, oh, yeah. If God is a love, God of love, then there is no judgment. Doesn't he say, judge not lest you be judged? And they take a text and they pervert it. They've, they've alloyed, they make a different substance altogether. We should be aware of doctrines that are new. Have you ever stopped to consider for a moment how some of the teachings, not all of them, but some of the teachings that come up today are, are people who have literally gone, well, in the 2,000-something years of the church, someone never saw this, but I got it. And you go, wow, is there an arrogance in that? An arrogance and a pride to think that Nobody in the church for all these years has discovered it, but you got it. 
So we have to ask, what is someone saying? Does it, it, does it agree with or contradict the teaching of Scripture? Does it suggest a way that I am to approach God that is different than the way God has instructed that I approach him? And what does Paul tell us in Galatians 1? But even if an angel, or if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be cursed. We must at all times be on the lookout for false teaching. And I believe this is the way that the evil one is attacking the American church. You look all around us and we see diverse teachings that creep up. We hear truth mixed with lie. And we're not equipped to tell the difference. The church is being confronted today with the desire to remain co- co- culturally and socially relevant. And so the argument goes something like this. You know, if you look at the church, we're losing the younger generation. They just don't want anything to do with the church. So if we want to keep them, we need to appeal to them. And this moves in small ways in small ways and then to greater ways. And what happens is, is that the church begins to forsake truth for relevance. And the reality is, is that we no longer have the, the power of the gospel of Jesus. We've removed it. We think the gospel and the word of God need our help to keep going. There's a foolishness and an arrogance in that line of thinking. And we have to watch it. And it is in the church. It's not, it's coming to the church. It's in the church. Teaching that says, look, the Bible, it's got a lot of really good stuff in it. But the Bible was also written 1900 years ago. 1900, whatever you want to call it, whatever, 2,000 years ago. We'll just say 2,000, just make a round number. And the culture there was different than our culture today. And our culture is more advanced today. Therefore, we must remove the cultural wrong and put in the cultural right. Or we have, or it goes like this. You know, there's a lot of good things that the Bible says God, like God wants to bless us. And we like that, but we don't like the parts where it talk about suffering. So let's take away the suffering and let's just leave the blessing. God just wants to bless you. God just wants to best. He just wants you to be healthy. If you have enough faith, you'll be healthy and God will bless you. You just need more faith. And these perverted, these false teachings come into the church. I remember growing up hearing that saying, well, God's not going to give you anything more than you can handle. And for for a long time, I never heard anything contrary to that, even in in circles. And you're like, oh, that must be true. And then you read Paul say, you're going to suffer like Jesus suffered. Wait, what? No, God's not going to give me I can't handle. We have to watch out for false teaching. 
Our second point here, and, and you might be like, well, this is a weird point, Daniel. I don't understand what you're saying. But it's this, the ineffectiveness of food. One of the things that particularly died hard as um, people were moving from Judaism to Christianity was the food laws. Not only the food laws, but the celebrating, celebrating of the uh, feast and so on and so, so forth. So much so that they got to the point where like, you have to do these things or you're really not part of the people of God. You have to continue to offer sacrifices. You have to continue to be part of these feasts. Paul again and again is fighting this in his writing. He says, spiritual strength doesn't come from what you eat. It comes by grace, which is received through faith. And you might go, well, we don't have anything like that today. And I would go, hold on. I believe we do have things that are much like this today. In fact, one of the big things about coming out of the, in the Reformation, and I'm about to give you a Latin phrase, just hear it and then forget it, was this phrase that said, ex opera operato. What does that mean? It, it's translated like this. It means, by the doing, it is done. And I'll, let's take that even back a, a, a one more step. It basically means this. The heart doesn't matter. It's the doing that matters. So there are some who look at the Lord's Supper today and they'll say, look, it doesn't matter where your heart is. If you take the Lord's Supper, you're good. It doesn't matter. There are some who even, uh, and this is not our baptism, but some who say baptism saves you. Simply by the doing of the baptism, it's done. That's not true. But we can go even a step further. There are some who say, well, if you just walk down the aisle and come up here and say this prayer that I have you read off a card then you're good. Not that those things are wrong, but they can be presented as wrong. Anything we give power simply by the doing. The reader is feeling, of, of, Paul, of this letter by the apostle here, or by the writer, is feeling pressure. They're being criticized. Obviously, they're being criticized. It says, he starts talking about an altar. We have an altar which, which from those who serve at the tent have no right to eat. And you can imagine uh, the argument being something like this. You're, you're obviously inferior. You have no altar to worship at. We have Jerusalem. What do you have? And the writer points them, and if we don't know the, our history, we miss something here. He points them to a specific sacrifice which the, the priests in the temple were not allowed to eat from. Uh, for the, most of the daily sacrifices, the, the priests in the temple would take a portion and they would eat that. The, there was one sacrifice that that was not true for, and that was the Day of Atonement. And you would take what was left of the sacrifice, you would take it outside the city, and you would burn it until there was nothing left. This sin offering, this atonement offering, not a piece would be eaten of. And so he's pointing to that. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as sacrifice for the sins are burned outside the camp. So they're saying we have a sacrifice that is like that sacrifice. Like, not the same. And if it's not the same, what is it? Yeah, I heard, did someone say it? What have we been saying all over the place throughout Hebrews? 
It's a better sacrifice. It's not the same. It's better. It pointed to the better sacrifice, but it's better. It's far better than their sacrifice. They have no right to eat from this. This sacrifice that came from outside the city. Jesus who suffered outside the city to sanctify the people through his own blood. And the writer is in essence saying this. Why would you keep going back to the inferior when the better has come? Yeah, that we don't have an altar because we have Jesus. We have a sacrifice that was made outside of city once for all. For the remission of sins. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Our passage is condemning any view that Christ enters into men or women simply by the doing of something. By the eating of food. uh, By the partaking in a baptism. This is what we, they call it transubstantiation, where the body and the or the bread and the and the wine become the body and blood of our Jesus, our Savior. And so again, over and over again, Christ is placed upon the altar. And this is a wrong teaching. We receive him by grace alone, through faith alone. In him we have an altar at which the unbelieving priests have no right to eat. In 1633, Archbishop William Laud, he was an English champion of high church. And in 1633, he took a a trip to Scotland. And he went to Scotland. He found no cathedrals. He found no outward displays of religious grandeur. And he reported, Scotland has no religion at all that I could see, which grieved me much. The problem with Archbishop Laud is this. His definition of what religion is was buildings, was grandeur. And so it didn't, when he came to Scotland and he didn't see these things, he declared they have no religion. But external life, or eternal life, excuse me, does not come by external means. It becomes by a heart inclined turned to the cross through faith in God's word in relying on Christ in his substitutionary work of atonement. Again, it's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And in the middle of this this discussion here, we get a wonderful reminder. Do we need to live holy lives? Yes. Does he want us to do the work of holiness? Yes. Does he want us moving forward each and every day in holiness? Yes. But he reminds us, it's not in the doing that you're made holy. It's not in the doing that you're made holy. It's not in reading your Bible every day that you're made holy. It's not in praying every day that you're made holy. It's not coming to church on Sunday or on Wednesdays that makes you holy. It's not avoiding certain things and and doing these other things that makes you holy. It's not about what you eat or drink. 
It's not about what you don't eat or don't drink. It's about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And it's from that knowledge that you rest firm in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That his righteousness, and dare we use this word again, this alien righteousness. This righteousness that is not natural to us. Has been put upon us. It has been given to us. And so we are now holy to the Lord. Because it's about what Jesus has done. And it's there that we rest firm. That it's not about what we do. It's about his grace in our lives. And then guess what that enables us to do? Everything else. And so we read our Bible, not because we think it makes us better Christian or makes us more holy, but because it's an act of obedience. So we live lives that are in obedience according to his word, understanding where we are to come from, or not where we are to come from, but where we do come from. We have Jesus. As he tells us in 12, that even so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. This morning, if you were at Sunday school, I asked you to remember where Moses pitched his tent after Israel sinned. You remember where I told you he pitched his tent? Outside the camp. And who met him there? God. And why was God not going to go into the camp? Because the people were a sinful, wicked people. So Moses left the sinfulness of the people and went outside to meet God. There is a similar call here to us. Where did Jesus die? Outside the city. He suffered for us. He sanctified. He justified us and sanctified us through his own blood outside the camp. And we need to meet him there. And we think about it in our context. You might, well, Daniel, what do you mean? We got to go outside Pell City? I mean, we're kind of outside Pell City. Uh, I guess we're technically still in the city limits here. But we're kind of, is that what you mean? No. It's not a posture, a locale, a position like that. It's this, that we need to go outside of the world and the sinfulness of the world and find Jesus. We go outside the camp to where the grace of God is. If you desire the acceptance of the world, then you cannot have fellowship with Christ. Jesus made it clear that following him means rejection by the world. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You're not in the camp of the world. You're outside the camp with Jesus. We have to go there. We have to be willing to give up everything for Jesus. That means families. That means churches. That means the world at large. 
Again, Jesus and Mark, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Again, he reminds us that we have a city that is to come, verse 14, for we have, we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. This is something he's already told us recently in Hebrews 11 or 12, I don't remember, recently, not too long ago, that we are looking to a heavenly city, a city that is to come. And he reminds us of this. The world is not your safe place as we tend to think of it is. We think of security in established worldly institutions. We find security in those who have power or possessions. He says, but true security is found in the one whose victory has already been secured. And it's hard for us. It's hard not to fit into the world. Even the disciples found it challenging to maintain their walk with God, the early disciples. But we need to remind it that our citizenship is not in heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior and a Lord Jesus Christ. I said our citizenship is not in heaven. I meant to say our citizenship is now in heaven. We are brought near to God with Christ in his heavenly dwelling. We are God's children. Therefore, by faith, we see outside the camp is truly where we find Christ. The day is coming when what is hidden will be revealed. When we will be brought into the glories of the new heaven and new earth. To that city which will never pass away. But we are called now to be a body of outsiders. We cannot live like and look like the world. We have to be different. And it is troublesome and worrisome to me when I hear those in the church who say, no, we have to remain relevant for the sake of the gospel. As if Jesus does not already have it under control. As if we have to help him along. And Jesus says, leave that away from me. Come outside and find me. For I have already secured it. You now live differently. You have different priorities. Don't look like the world. Look like Christ. So the question is this. Are we willing to give up everything? For the sake of our relationship with Jesus. Are you willing to give up family? Are you willing to give up friends? Are you willing to give up the things of this world? Knowing that Christ has given up all for you. That, so that we can possess a righteousness. A relationship that is from him. So that we might have life. So we no longer dwell and focus on the city in which we live in. No, we go outside and we look for the city that is to come. The heavenly city. And guess what? 
when the world mocks and reviles you and makes fun of you and persecutes you and tells you that you're, you're dumb and you're ridiculous and you're intolerant and you're whatever it may be. When the world gets upset because you say sin is sin and they come after because they will come after you. The, the world does not like being told they're living wrong. The world who does, has no belief in a God doesn't like being told that God will judge them. Why? By the way, that's interesting, isn't it? If I look at someone and say, you know, you're sinning and God will judge you for that. And if he doesn't believe in God, you know what he should do? You're an idiot and move on with his life. But they don't do that, do they? They are incensed and angry. They don't like being told that they're living wrong. But we look to a time when Christ comes again, when he sets up his reign on this earth. And this is where our hope lies in a savior who is better. Better than what? Everything. He is better than everything, better than any worldly institution, better than any alternative method to the cross or to salvation, better than our jobs, better than our possession, better than our homes, better than, than, than our whatever it may be. He's better than everything. So we must seek sound teaching. We are not to be taken in by false teachers. We are to rest firmly secure in the teaching of God. We must be those who don't place our hope and our rest in the things that we do. We cannot earn our own righteousness. We we cannot create new ways to come before God that are contrary to the way he has commanded us. And we are to live as outsiders, those who are outside the camp, living differently than the, the society, living differently than the world, We are to be a people who live like Christ. We are to look like him in the way we act, in the way we talk. What is it? uh, I'm not going to remember where it is, but Mark likes to, to point this one out. We need to smell like Jesus. Mark could probably tell me where the passage is. Second Corinthians. We need to smell like Jesus. The fragrance of him. Do you live like him? Are you putting off all else? Because it's who you are. Remember, we don't put off things in the hope that it gains us favor. We don't not live like the world in the hopes that we might get to heaven. If you claim Jesus Christ as your own this day, you are different. You possess a righteousness and a holiness that is not your own. And you may have days that you don't feel like that. And you may have days that you're worried about the validity of it. And you may have days where you struggle and you wrestle with it. But the call here is to say, it's not what you do. It's what Christ has done. So come and see Jesus Put aside all else. Live with him looking to his city that is to come. It's a wonderful and beautiful encouragement for us. Yeah, we can get bogged down in trying to live holy. And look, we're to try to live holy. 
It's not about what we earn. It's not what we do. It's not the doing that makes us better. It's that we are different already. And we're beginning to try to act how we're going to act in eternity. Maybe that's an oversimplification, but it makes sense too, I think. We're preparing now for what is already secure. Doesn't that give you hope? Doesn't that give you joy? Doesn't that, eat, when, when he says, my burden is light, why do you think he says that to us? Because it's not a burden that says, hey, if you don't do this, oh well, you don't get to come into my kingdom. No, it's a burden that says, you're already in my kingdom. Now live like I live. Act like I act. Knowing that you have me. You, I am yours and you are mine. And nothing can mess with that. It's the gospel of Jesus, right? It's the gospel of Jesus. It's what sets us free. Is that your hope today? Are you resting in the gospel of Jesus? Or are you like me? You still have those ways you let the world come in. And you're kind of got one fit in one camp and one foot in the other. We're outside the camp. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's go outside. Maybe a good good exhortation today because it's finally sunny, but let's go outside. Let's stop living in this world. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father. Oh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he has done. Thank you for who we are in him. Oh, would we be secure in that? Would we put all else off? Knowing that his righteousness has been put on us. Even as the writer said, let us now run with this race, with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. We ask and pray this in his holy name. Amen. Amen.